0: Hello and welcome to The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle Radio. Each week, the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance take you beyond the numbers and hype right to the heart of the big issues of the day. This week, we're reflecting on the most recent white paper from the UBS Sustainability and Impact Institute, published to coincide with the World Economic Forum's annual meeting at Davos. This year's white paper, Bloom or Bust, Aligning Technology and Finance to Address Biodiversity Challenges, sets out a challenge that the global community is finally, seemingly, starting to really grasp. Namely, that biodiversity loss requires just as swift action as climate change to address. In the report, two of whose authors we'll hear from today on the programme, UBS has gathered experts in the field to reflect on the problems at hand, to explore the efficacy of the existing solutions available and to consider the role that a mix of finance, government action, and deep partnerships can play in enabling the initiation of nature's recovery. Well, let's start the show by meeting the first member of our panel today. It's a pleasure to welcome back to the programme William Nicole, ESG Analyst in the UBS Sustainability and Impact Institute. William, as ever, great to have you with us. Can you give us a sense of how dependent the economy is on on nature and why it's so important to calibrate that properly when we're looking at addressing some of these urgent global challenges. The
1: starting point for the answer here is not looking at just what is dependent on nature. I think the starting point really needs to be that all economic activity is dependent on nature in some way. And I start like that because in the report, we have this figure that around 60% of GDP is at least moderately dependent on ecosystem services, which implies that maybe there's a, a portion that's not, which is wrong. You know, nature is really the backdrop for existence. And this is really a question of a degree of dependence. So where really are the economic activities that have some high dependence on nature? And I think it's easiest to start with thinking about the sectors where there are clear natural inputs, where clearly there are you know, there are things coming from nature which are central to the things that those industries produce. And the easiest starting point, I think, is agriculture. You know, agriculture uses healthy soil to produce crops. It uses lots of water in that process. There are other elements of nature, living things that help to produce crops and sort of increase yields, such as pollination. All of those things that go into producing, say, a ton of wheat, they're known as ecosystem services, and this is broadly just the benefits that flow from nature to people. And you can clearly see there that if you have sort of stronger ecosystem services, if you have healthier soil, sort of more clean and a reliable source of water, as well as sort of more bees buzzing about, you're more likely to get higher yields in agriculture. So that's a very clear and strong story, and it provides a very good basis for like why nature is economically important in these very sort of nature-facing economic sectors, if you like. And if you zoom out and sort of take that understanding, you can start to see where nature dependence is hidden in in other areas of the economy where you might not think there are these dependencies as much. So I think a good example is water. You know, that's an element of nature. It's um, not a living element, but it is still something that nature provides. And it is used as an input in industries across the economy. If you look at say nuclear energy it needs a lot of water for cooling same as kind of other forms of power generation and you can see that if you get a sudden disruption to the water supply then you also get a disruption to the power supply you know the, the nuclear power plants can't meet their cooling needs and then they, they therefore can't kind of produce energy for the grid and you can see sort of flashpoints where suddenly you get a disruption to these these ecosystem services and that has economic implications So a good example is in France in 2022, there was a big drought and river levels were generally much lower than their historical trends. And stakeholders across the energy industry, particularly nuclear, because it's quite water hungry, had to turn down the amount of power that they put out because they couldn't get enough water from the rivers to actually safely produce energy. So I think that's a good example of these hidden dependencies as you zoom out from the sort of the more obvious sectors where nature is important, like agriculture. And then if you zoom out again, you can get even kind of more hidden uh, dependencies, if you like, because some sectors you might think have basically no relevance to nature. Like what does what does software have to do with how much water is in the ground, right? And again, when you start looking through this lens of nature, you can see these little hidden dependencies everywhere, either directly. So for example, you could see data centers use a lot of water that underpins a lot of software infrastructure, but also companies that don't directly interact with nature and ecosystem services have these dependencies through their supply chains. So a good example, again, going back to agriculture is like food distributors, you know, your local supermarket doesn't depend on the healthiness of the soil or how many bees there are just to sort of have a store and sell you products and you walk in and buy it. But the people they get those products from have a very direct interface with nature. So you can see the store has, has an indirect dependence through its supply chain. So this is really where, you know, coming back to your question about why is nature important, it's because lots of economic activities and the the sort of quality of the things they produce, the quantity of the things they produce depend on ecosystem services. And this has importance for other economic sectors where you might not immediately think they're nature relevant, but they have hidden dependencies, as well as sectors where they really don't have on the surface Uh, dependence on nature but they do via their kind of supply networks
0: if we look at the economic risk profile here there are clearly a number of significant areas of 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 risk and of jeopardy how do we best go about managing them against the backdrop that you've described
1: well, it's a very complicated question and, and it might be, you know, one you're asking that if we if we know about all of these risks, why aren't we already managing them already, right? With financial markets this is for example, to manage financial risks and they do that, I think, in a, in a very effective way in the modern world and really our understanding of these risks is just only beginning because only in 2022 did governments agree this sort of big Paris Agreement for nature. It's called the Kunming Montreal Protocol, and one of its primary goals is to reverse biodiversity loss by 2030. You know, it's 2024 now, that's only six years away. So the question of sort of how do we manage these risks, we were only really kind of starting to get our act together on sizing them up, which is this sort of 60% of GDP exposure, as well as setting goalposts for when we want to reduce them by there are big barriers sitting in the way of how we manage these risks. One is just nature is invisible today. You know, it has a value, clearly. It's it's an input to all of these economic activities, but it still has no price, which means we don't know how to put a sort of pound or dollar value on the contribution of bees to farming output or the contribution of water to the output of the nuclear industry. And that's always going to be a problem when you're trying to reflect values in prices. In our current system we have some distorting effects for subsidies where um, we currently still pay kind of more nature harming activities than activities that support nature. Again, probably built on our only recent understanding of the size and, and exposure of, of these risks. But today subsidies are five times larger for nature harming activities than subsidies that flow to activities that support nature. And that's a big distorting effect and, and, you know, actually incentivizes the, the growth of these risks as opposed to their management, I would say. And this brings us around to, you know, where are we today? Then how do we start managing these risks? And there are a few estimates out there for how much it should cost. One a few years ago put the investment gap at around 700 billion. And that was a few years ago. It's likely to have increased a little bit since then. We see capital markets being able to play quite a significant role here. And the starting point for capital markets to begin kind of looking at these risks and incentivizing their management is this thing we call nature-focused transition finance. So there's a range of tools today that banks and other capital providers can integrate the consideration of nature-related risks in kind of their products or in how their clients look at these risks. And a lot of them can be classed as transition finance, which is where Broadly, you link the promotion of positive behaviours that support sustainability goals to the financing terms of the product. So think about kind of your average loan or your average bond. If you have, for example, a requirement to disclose these risks or to manage them effectively as part of the financing terms, you can start to build a greater knowledge base as well as proactive management of risk throughout the economy. And there's some, there's some teething problems with these tools. They're very new. It's, it's a young area of sustainable finance, but we think they pose a very promising set of tools going forward as our knowledge of nature-related risks and how to manage them and even maximise the opportunities that they could present kind of grows. That being said, you know, capital markets can't do it all by themselves. And this is where we think that there is a really significant role to play for Government action alongside a range of new partnerships because this 2030 biodiversity goal, so to reverse biodiversity loss in just six years, requires a rapid action across the whole economy. And as we kind of get a greater knowledge of these nature related risks throughout the economy, we think that they can only be managed through active partnerships and some of the barriers I just talked about really only things that can be addressed by public authorities because they are things like subsidies, right, which which are sort of out of the, the hands of private entities.
0: Yeah, because I was going to ask you about this this fact that private capital alone isn't going to be the fix. And obviously, you know, and one thing that I think is in is in the white paper is this idea that we have to have a clear direction in in policy terms. Do, Do you think we're getting anywhere closer to that? I mean, are there enough of the key stakeholders who are aligned and who are really buying into that idea? Obviously to try and coordinate or align policy globally is hugely complicated at the best of times, but is there at least an an engagement with this notion that we're at an inflection point and that the time for action is, well, it was probably 10 years ago, but it's certainly now?
1: Sure. In the report, we look at specifically this 2030 goal and what we think needs to happen to get to there. The fact that it was agreed in 2022 is a a sign of a very big moment of global consensus and, and taking these risks very seriously. That being said, there are still a number of things that governments today can do. We lay them out in the report. These start, I think, first and foremost, is providing suitable economic incentives. I really think the lowest hanging fruit you can get is basically aligning public fiscal expenditure behind sustainability goals. So essentially winding down subsidies that flow to nature-harming activities and getting more towards nature-supporting um, activities. One example we call out in the report is How some countries have recently linked agricultural subsidies with environmental improvement. I think this is the direction it's going in in Europe, for example, and I think that is a good example of governments kind of doing the economic incentive piece. However, there are are sort of other ways that governments can also play an important role, which again we touch on in the report. One is just sending clear signals, right, because the private sector can still play a big role through all these transition finance tools as well as partnerships, except these are. This is a long-term transition and you need confidence in the direction of travel from a policy perspective. So that being said, governments can, can send those clear signals, particularly through kind of taking the international agreement uh, for this 2030 goal we have and implementing it into sort of convincing national policies. And then I think finally, a really important area for government action is just improving the general knowledge base. So we have this stat in the report that 70% of investors today believe that a lack of data is a key barrier to investing in nature. And governments can sort of help to increase the amount of measurement that companies do and, and the risk management through things like promoting um, mandatory disclosures of, of key issues. Um, and we think that, you know, data is basically a key enabler of action throughout the economy.
0: Well, William, just in terms of the challenge, you've sketched it pretty clearly how significant the challenge is and you've spoken to about the urgency. As with so many of these types of issues building strong collaborations, getting buy-in, establishing the right partnerships is going to be critical, isn't it, in terms of moving the needle in the short time that we have available?
1: Yeah, you're totally right. You know, biodiversity touches every sector, and so by necessity any strategy to manage it relies on a diversity of stakeholders. Um, That being said, it's also, you know, the other side of the sustainability coin to climate change, because failing on one means failing on both. So partnerships are really important to align action across different economic sectors, but also different issues. So biodiversity and climate can tend to be segregated. But we think that's a bit of a false binary because, you know, just looking at the Paris Agreement, 37% of the cost effective emission cuts needed to align with its goals can come from nature-based solutions. So you can see links between the two. One area we think is particularly interesting is blended finance and this is really uh, an interesting space as a catalyst for partnerships going forward, particularly on the investing side. So in blended finance you typically get different types of capital providers coming together who all have different risk tolerances and what they do is they agree to sort of take different chunks of risk and the more risk agnostic kind of bits of capital, so that might be your government funding, it might be philanthropic funding, agree to take maybe, for example, the first losses or or through some guarantees to spread the risk and make projects palatable for other forms of private capital that might have slightly more stringent risk return preferences. And by doing this, it helps bring lots of projects that are not bankable today, which means they don't generate a return or they're looked at as being a bit too risky for the markets. It helps make them bankable. It helps them attract capital and then actually kind of get off the ground and get done, which is what you need with these big global biodiversity targets, which ultimately happen from the bottom up. They happen through lots of on-the-ground biodiversity interventions. So zooming back out, Blended Finance is uh, really a space where you could see a lot of partnerships between, for example, like NGOs, companies, as well as capital markets, providers who are private as well as public, coming together to basically put spades in the ground and get
0: interventions going. William Nicole. Well, next, let's hear from one of William's co-authors on the report, Leland Worden, restoration ecologist with the Crowther Lab at ETH Zurich, who focuses on understanding global restoration outcomes and looks in detail at the successes and failures of projects all around the world. Leland, thanks for being on the programme. Great to have you with us. Let me ask you, first of all, about metrics, because how we measure what the metrics we use are in this space is so... Critical. And if we look at the demands of uh, the targets for 2030, there has to be such clarity, doesn't there, about measurement, about metrics. Tell us a little bit about, if you agree, why that is so important.
2: Yeah, I, I do agree that understanding essentially how to measure and what to measure is critically important. And I I've been involved with a couple of kind of global stock-taking exercises where We've tried to narrow down from thousands of indicators to even potentially hundreds that we can use to track the recovery of projects. But that's generally where we're at now. We're still kind of getting to the place where we say, these are the things that we measure, but what we need to be doing is essentially figuring out how we measure them and standardizing that globally. And that is incredibly difficult, especially when it comes to on-the-ground measurement. But we really are trying to move forward with coming up with simple ways to measure things on the ground. And a lot of the new technology that we discuss in the white paper can actually be used essentially with standardized protocols that can be scaled up at lots of different sites. And that really is the way forward. So obviously settling on what to measure is very important, but settling on kind of globally on some general guidelines for how we measure things is super important as we try to actually make comparisons between areas around the world so that we know that we're making the same A to A comparison, not apples to oranges, it's apples to apples, so we can know essentially that the same comparison is being made site to site.
0: Well, yes, and to that point, then, Neelan, can you talk to us a bit about the the toolbox of technologies available then to to measure? Because I guess there's sometimes a bit of a misunderstanding, whether it's willful or otherwise, that you know a revolution is needed. But actually, is it the case that we have lots of options in that arsenal, in that toolkit already? And it's really more of a of a deployment question. What do you What do you think about this one?
2: Yeah, so the technology is rapidly evolving, but we already have a kind of suite of really Tried and true protocols and just approaches that we can use. And the solutions that we've focused on in our work is primarily remote sensing, eDNA, bioacoustics, and camera trapping. And remote sensing, just satellite imagery, can be used to track just lots of different metrics of ecosystem properties and recovery. And then on the ground, eDNA, which is essentially going out and collecting a water sample or a soil sample and Getting a sense of all the species that have been essentially in that area can give us a really nice snapshot of biodiversity. Just sound recordings can be used to essentially understand what species are in ecosystems and also just the complexity of ecosystems just by listening across what we call the soundscape of essentially what's happening in a given area. And camera trapping has been around for a really long time. People just taking images of animals in different environments and can be used to really track population densities and what's there and what's not. So we do really have a really nice toolkit that has been assembled. And we're at this point basically trying to drink from a fire hose of data that are coming in from all over the world. But a lot of it that we do have these this good set of metrics, we just really need to think about how to standardize measurements. That's not to say that there won't be lots of emerging tech in the future and remote sensing essentially comes out with a new data product um, essentially every week, it seems like at this point, but we do have a lot of the tools that I think can be really used to create this manageable monitoring framework for biodiversity around the world.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And the the data that we derive then, Leland, what, what can we do with that? Because I guess there's a, there's a moment here, we're at a bit of an inflection point, but there is clearly a, a potentially transformative power that that data has. And I know from talking to William and others that your lab has some amazing data products, some amazing indices. Maybe you can tell us a bit about what we can do with all the data that we do harvest.
2: Yeah, so there's already basically over a billion species occurrence data in this database called GBIF, and there's also a lot of other biodiversity monitoring um, databases that are coming online. And essentially, as we start to sample biodiversity and understand how it changes over time, we can try to integrate all these different disparate data sources into basically what we call data ingesters that can take all the different sources and try to compute um, the state of biodiversity at, at a given point on the ground and. The Crowley Lab has really been pioneering this new metric or index called the seed by a Complexity metric. Essentially, it's a data ingester that can take information from remote sensing. We're integrating eDNA and acoustics at this point and understand how basically pull all these technologies together to basically give us the idea of what the state of nature is at any given point on the world. So the end goal is basically to understand the state of nature relative to its undisturbed condition and as it evolves we're basically using this to hopefully to track the state of biodiversity at a 30 by 30 major scale globally Um, and this is something that we're really pushing forward right now and just try to figure out how we can bring in all these data sources but at the point this point the lab maintains just databases of 400 data layers globally and this all goes into different forms into computing this metric so they're really incredible kind of advances in machine learning and statistical technology that basically can help us take all of these data sets that seem like they're basically kind of hard to actually integrate all together, but actually put them all into one complete picture of the state of biodiversity.
0: Leland, just finally, let me ask you, what is the potential here?
2: Yeah, having essentially some type of standardization that can help us track the state of nature and how it changes based on different practices that are happening on the ground is incredibly important. and. I think even just for restoration practitioners, the lab has a platform called Restore that helps essentially people to get access to these data so they can understand the recovery that's happening at their sites. So basically unlocking and democratizing access to data has been really helpful for practitioners that don't have maybe the technical expertise to look at remote sensing data and track recovery over time, but also for potential investment in nature-based solutions and companies that are trying to understand their global footprint on the ground, these type of combinations of all of these different types of biodiversity data sources can actually help companies and organizations have a sense of the actual impact that their supply chains have on biodiversity. And this is really critically important to really understand um, how people can try to obviously decrease their impact on biodiversity, but then also choose where we really should be investing the most in infrastructure and funds towards restoration and conservation projects so that we can try to bolster biodiversity in areas that have been impacted the most.
0: Leland Worden, bringing us to the end of this edition of The Bulletin with UBS, setting the agenda in the fast-moving world of finance each week here on Monaco Radio. Listen again and explore more at monocle.com. That's where you can join the club by subscribing to the magazine. You can also follow this programme wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to discover more and find out how UBS can help you at ubs.com. This is The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle Radio. I'm Tom Edwards. Thanks for listening.